Well, it is good to be with you all. We have two Sundays left in our, uh, I don't know, don't start crying. Uh, we have two Sundays left in our series on the life of David, uh, looking at King David, the key figure, uh, a key figure in Israel's history. And whereas we've been kind of bouncing along, skipping a chapter at a time and picking up stories, this week we're going to pick up right where we left off last week with the Ark of God now safely uh, established in the capital city of Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and this story is also a little different than, uh, than previous stories uh, because most of the time we've been looking at what David has done uh, and what it tells us as David is a precursor to Christ. The stories of David point us to Christ. And so we look at the decisions he's made and we look at the heart of David and we see the heart of Christ. And all, and all that's very, very good. But this story is different in that uh, the primary speaker in this text is God himself. Uh, that in this passage, this, we will see the longest speech that God has delivered since Moses stood on Mount Sinai. And as one person put it, the words spoken by God in this chapter are still shaping human history today. In fact, these words are just as important to us as they would have been to David that day that he heard them. We're looking at what's called the Davidic Covenant, uh, which is another unfolding of God's plan of redemption for the entire world. What he is doing is he is giving the script that he has written for his drama of redemption that he is accomplishing over the entire world. And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'll read verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. And have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. So that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. And moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we come before you. You are the one who spoke to Moses. You are the one who gave these words to Nathan to give to your servant, David. And now we come before you as your servants as well. And we pray that you would speak to us, that the Holy Spirit with his divine whisper would proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to our very hearts, and that you would speak through me and help me to love these people, your people, well and to honor you with the things that I say this morning. I ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I was a teenager when I first saw this movie. It's been a lot of years, uh, but I remember it being a very intense and graphic portrayal of the horrors of the Holocaust. And so I can't just outright recommend it to you, buyer beware, it can be a tough watch. But I, uh, I was a teenager in 1993 when, I, uh, when Schindler's List uh, came out and was in movies. And, uh, and, and it, the, the premise of the story was about a, a man who was a registered member of the Nazi party. He used all of his influence and all of his money. He would bribe uh, SS officials in order to uh, bring Jews whose lives were in danger to work for him in his factory. And if he came to work for him... He would protect your life, and uh, you would be well-fed and taken care of. And it was because of the sacrificial work that he he protected the lives of more than a thousand Polish Jews. It's really amazing. Um, But the scene that, uh, and while I don't remember a lot of details about the movie, uh, the scene that I will never forget came at the very end. And it was when um, when he had to run because the Allied forces were coming. And the only people that knew what he had been doing were the people that he had served. According to to the Allied forces that were coming, he was a registered member and sympathizer with the Nazi party. So he had to flee. And there's a scene where he's making his way with his wife to his car, and, uh, and he was surrounded by all these people he had served faithfully for so many years. And he looks out at them, and he's overcome with emotion. And all he could think to say was, I haven't done enough. And then he looked at his car, and he thought, why did I keep this car? I could have sold this car, and it might have saved 10 more people. And then he pulled the pin, the Nazi pin, off his jacket, and he looked at it. And he said, this is made of gold. I could have saved one, maybe two more people. I haven't done enough. And overcome with emotion and thoroughly broken down, he climbs into his car with his wife and he says, I should have done more. 
I don't remember a lot of details about that movie, but that scene has haunted me since I've seen it with the feeling that I need to be doing more. I mean, this has affected me in ministry. If I can be vulnerable with you, there is always more that can be done. And there's never the feeling like you've done enough. This affects my relationships with people, especially hurting people. There's always the feeling like I need to be doing more. And this would even affect my relationship with God as I imagine a time when I'll be standing before him to give an account of all that I've done with what he's given to me. And I'm afraid that all I'll know to say is I should have been doing more. And if you can identify even a little bit with that feeling, I would submit to you that this is the story for you. Because we are coming across David in a time when he's been given rest. This is the first moment he has had a chance to breathe easily since he first set his feet on the battlefield in front of Goliath. Every day since that day has been marked by running as a fugitive with his life in danger, with people dying around him, with turmoil and violent unrest. And now here he has a chance to breathe, and the first thing he thinks to say is, what else should I be doing? And at first, this ambition seems admirable, doesn't it? I mean, the prophet Haggai would have loved what David was saying here. If you're unfamiliar with him, he's the one who excoriated God's people because they were attending to their own houses and leaving the house of the Lord neglected. And the prophet Nathan obviously thinks so too, as he says, go do all that is within your heart. Go build a house for the Lord. And it's into this desire to do something for the Lord that God says, hang on, just wait, just hold on a second. Your relationship to me isn't about what you do for me. It is about what I do for you. And then he goes on this long declaration of both all the ways that God has been providing for his people and how he's provided for David himself. He teaches David to look back and remember what God has done for him. And then he goes on a long explanation of all the things that he will do. He teaches David to look forward with hope. So he teaches David to look back with joy and to look forward with hope. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Those are my simple two points for you is that we are going to look back and then we are going to look forward as God says these things to David. First, looking back, God begins by reminding David of some of the history of God's relationship to the people. Uh, Look at verse 6. He's telling him to remember where your people came from. He said, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from Israel, uh, the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. What is God doing is he is widening David's perspective to remember the long history of God being with his people all the way back to when he rescued them from their slavery in Egypt. And during that time, they were a helpless people. I mean, they were an incredibly weak people who couldn't do for themselves. They couldn't save themselves. They certainly couldn't rescue themselves. And then God, because of his love for them and in his great power, humbled Pharaoh and rescued them from their slavery. And God makes it explicitly clear 
that it wasn't because they were wonderful that he came to them. It wasn't because they were this abidingly faithful or that they were a strong people that could one day do great things for God that he came to them. In fact, God will say that it was in your weakness that I came to you. You were the fewest among all the peoples and I came to you. I came to you for one reason and one reason only. This is what he said. He said, I came to you because the Lord has set his love on you and made a promise to your fathers. And so God is saying, remember where you came from. And so they went on to become a nomadic people at that point. And God went with them as they journeyed and wandered uh, in the wilderness toward a land that was promised with them. He was in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He was with them the whole time. And all the while, the ark was set in a tabernacle tent that God actually designed and instructed them to build for for them. And as God traveled with the people, uh, going before them with this tabernacle tent, we see something very important about God's character and how he deals with his people during this time. One person put it this way, I couldn't do any better, so I'm going to feed you this quote. This is what he says, In that tent, as humble as it is, Uh, we see the God who travels with his people in all of their journeys and wandering. Do his people live in a tent? So does he. And are they a pilgrim people on their way to the land of promise? Well, then so he is the pilgrim God, sharing the rigors of the journey with him. David says, remember where you came from. And then he he turns to David and says, remember where you came from. Look at verse 8. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people. I have been with you wherever you went. Just like God's people, David was an unlikely choice to be king. That, that, That he was... Uh, the, the, he was uh, the weakest. He was the youngest brother. There was nothing impressive about him when you looked at him. And God is drawing a clear parallel between the humble beginnings of his people and the humble beginnings of God himself. And he's making the simple but profound point that I think we all need to hear that just as God was with his people in the Exodus in the same way he is with David. And it's like he's saying to David, don't lose sight of that long story that you're a part of. Did you ever hear me complain about this tabernacle tent I've been living in? I was with your people when they were small and insignificant, and I am with you now. Now, why is that important? Because being able to look back actually shapes our present. A year and a half ago when we moved to be with you, many of you, not many of you, some of you noticed that I wasn't wearing a wedding ring at the time. And uh, I actually uh, inadvertently gave you the wrong impression. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sorry for that. But I did get one and I'm wearing it now. And, uh, but the story behind that is simply 
that I had lost it in a river before, I, like shortly before we moved here and didn't have one. And uh, that's actually the second time I've lost a wedding ring in a river. And I don't know which rivers they came off in because I went several uh, weeks without, like, or days without even knowing that it was gone. I had become so used to it. And so when I uh, bought this one, I bought four of them just in case. <laughs> so, so it's there and, uh, and I have it. But why is this wedding ring important for me to be wearing? Every time I officiate a wedding, I, I say this when we exchange rings. I say that the, the shape of the ring, the circle, represents the eternal love of God that trains us in the ways that we're supposed to love each other. And the precious metals of that ring, that this one doesn't quite capture for me, but the precious metals of that ring remind us of the, the immense value of that love. And so every time I look at that ring, I remember a promise that I made 13 years ago and one that was made to me. And it's a reminder to me that everywhere I go, I don't go alone, but I go with Shonda in mind with me. I am looking back in order that it might shape my present, right? There's a story about one of our church fathers. His name is Polycarp. He was a mid-second century bishop of a city called Smyrna. We actually, he's a pretty big deal. We actually think he might have been a student of the Apostle John, which is incredible to think about. Um, could you imagine what those conversations might have been like? Um, but there came a point toward the end of his life where the, the Roman Empire had become very hostile to the practice of the Christian faith. And he was asked to recant his faith and proclaim a primary allegiance to the Roman Empire. And this is what he said. He said, 80 and 6 years I have served Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme against my King and Savior? That's a pretty powerful thing to say. But what was he doing? He was remembering a long testimony of his life with Jesus. He was looking back in order that it might shape his present. Look, we have all kinds of ways of doing this, don't we? I mean, I, you know, we have pictures that we like to put up on our walls or around the places that we live. Sometimes we have things that we wear that remind us of certain things that help us to look back and kind of ground us in a place. But let me ask you, when, when you think of the context of your faith in Jesus Christ, what do you look back on? As you remember your primary identity, what do you look to? Uh, as a pastor here, I get to do a lot of membership interviews, and I can't tell you how often I hear, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the faith. I've always known Jesus. And that is an incredible story. But it, it, if, if you're like me, I am that way too. I grew up in the faith. It can be hard sometimes to look back and try and capture these high moments of the faith where, where God was moving in dramatic ways that I can point to and, and look back on in order that it might shape our present, right? Let me point something out. When, David, when God calls David to look back, he first calls him to a story of, the, of his rescue of God's people that David never would have heard of if it hadn't been recorded in the scriptures. That, that before God spoke about his faithfulness 
in David's life, he started talking about his faith, ancient faithfulness to the people, the story that he's a part of. And so let me just point this out. When you are reading your Bible, you are looking back at God's faithfulness that it might shape your present. Whether it's in the context of worship, like, like right now, like we're doing right now, or in quiet moments in your own home, or when you're looking at it with friends, that is a way of looking back on God's faithfulness in order that it might shape, uh, that it might shape your future. Because here is where we're told of God's kindness to sinners. Here is, where we're here is where we're told of his long compassion toward us. Here we're, we're instructed in a way of living that honors him. That we are looking back on God's ancient dealings with his people in order that it might shape our present. But you know what? It does more than that, doesn't it? It doesn't just help us look back, but it actually teaches us to look forward with hope. And that's what God does with, uh, with David. It's like he turns the tables completely on David. David says, I want to do this great thing for the Lord. And God says, no, actually listen to all the amazing things I'm going to do for you and for your people. And it's almost like, it, it's, it's almost like God is gushing at this moment, okay? It, it feels, when you read it, it almost feels like effusive gushing as he declares over and over again the amazing things that he's going to do. As he unpacks his plan for David, what we see in this passage is a future that's filled with God's promises. We could do a sermon on each one of the promises, but I'm just going to name three, okay? I'm going to spare you from that. But the, one of the first things that he promises his people is security. Look at verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people and I will plant them so that they might dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. He's promising a time when they won't have to move anymore. And they will be completely, they won't be threatened where they are. They are secure in the place that he puts them. And then he promises them rest. Look at verse 11. I will give you rest from all your enemies. And if, if you're familiar with David's life, you actually know that this current rest that he's enjoying is a season of rest. This is a temporary rest. There's going to come a time where, we, where he has to go on the run again. But here God is promising a time when that rest will be permanent, never to be violated again. And then the third promise I want to name is a promise of commitment. We see this in God's commitment to David's lineage, his household. So in verse 12, I will raise up your offspring after you and I will establish his kingdom. That, that what God began through David with the rising of this new king will continue in David's lineage. And then he uses adoption language. This is adoption language he uses. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. He's obviously talking about David's son Solomon in here. But in verse 16, you get the sense that he He's talking about so much more. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Why is that such a big deal? Well, God just announced, without even being asked, he announced his unilateral covenantal commitment that there will always be someone in the line of David sitting on the throne of Israel. 
Now, I read, a, uh, I read something this week that called this passage the climax of the Old Testament. I'm still wrestling with that. Uh, earlier, I said that these are words from God that are still shaping history today. And what's interesting about this is none of these promises were realized before David died. And so if this isn't talking about David or one of David's immediate sons, who is this passage talking about? In a minute, when I'm finished, we're going to sing about a man that we call great David's greater son. A man who promises us such security that not even death can separate us from him. Not even death can separate us from the love of God that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ. A man who stood before a bunch of weary people. And he said, come to me all who labor and are heavily burdened. And I will give you rest for your souls. A man who collaborated with the triune Godhead and time pre-eternal to redeem their people from their sin and bring them into fellowship with God, the same fellowship with God that's being promised in this chapter. A man whose commitment to you is so deep and so profound that he declared it with the forfeit of his life and who right now sits on a throne in heaven ruling in all righteousness, security, rest, and commitment are all bound up in the promises that come to you through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the only reason why we can look forward into our future, in the near future, in the far future, with hope. It wasn't long ago, I think it was just a week ago, I was having this conversation with a friend, and it was just a great conversation because he was telling me all about the, the, uh, the conversations he was having with his counselor, you know, so we, like I got to wrestle with him after the fact, but he was, um, he was wrestling with like very practical things to do in his life. He was thinking about his job and uh, all the people that were being affected. He was thinking about switching uh, jobs and had X, Y, and Z to think about and what would happen, like what's the chain reaction of events that would happen if he decided to leave his job. And he was imagining the future with his counselor. And, And his counselor said this to him, Christian counselor said, almost always when we imagine our futures, We imagine them playing out in a world void of grace. And so let me ask you, when you imagine your future, the near future and the far future, what do you see? Can you see a future that's secure because Jesus says that you're secure in him? Or do you imagine a life of challenges and you're just trying to hold on, trying, not to, trying to screw up as little as possible along the way? Can you see a future of rest when your soul is free from the burdens that you're carrying today? Or do you imagine a life of hard work and maybe you'll rest if the stock market allows you? Can you imagine a future where Jesus is unflinchingly committed to you? To see you in flourishing and abiding joy inexhaustible? Or do you imagine a future when the person most committed to you is you? And you better perform because there's no one else looking out for you. So the wonder of the gospel 
is that it enters all of these feelings of, I haven't done enough, and nothing I will ever do will be enough. And it says, look what I have have done for you, and look what I will do for you. Look at Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. And look at what he promises he will do for you. God flipped the tables on, on, uh, on David. David was wondering what he could do for God. And God says, look at all that I'm going to do for you and through you. That David wanted to create a home for God. And God wants to build a home for his people. Listen, we trust the weight of our lives to the promises that come to us as people that can never do enough to make our lives right. That, that Jesus, the, one, the, the Jesus, the giver of all life, the one that did everything necessary to redeem us to a life with God. And that is the promise that's given to us. It's God's unilateral movement toward us. You know what happened? to Oscar Schindler. It's a fascinating story. It's not in the movie. Uh, after he fled his factory full of the Jews he, he saved, he was out of money. Uh, and eventually he, went, he had to declare bankruptcy in 1958, which would have been 13 years after he left. Um, and, uh, and because he had spent all of his money protecting these Jews during the war. And what happened was there was this amazing, there was this organization that was founded called Schindler Juden which means Schindler Jews. And it was all of the people that he had helped along the way gathered and uh, gathered up and uh, began to provide for him for the rest of his life until he died in 1974. And he was actually buried on Mount Zion in, outside Jerusalem, not far from where David was when he first heard these words. It's fascinating. The only difference is that in Jesus we didn't do anything to earn this favor. Like we understand the loyalty of the Schindler Juden towards Schindler. And this is what's incomprehensible is that Jesus comes to us and he gives us the goodness of his grace and his love. In this text, what we see is that God is a promise maker. And in Jesus, what we see is that God is a promise keeper. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would hold these two visions in front of us, that you would make clear in the ways that we need to hear just what you have already done, the wonder of your sacrifice, the value of what you have given to us, the perseverance of your love for us. Lord, would you convince our souls all over again and I pray that you would give us the gift of being able to look forward into a future of a life with you and have real and abiding joy. Would you give that to us just as you gave it to David? I pray these things with love for you, Lord Jesus. Amen.